0: What is up? Welcome to the Walk Show podcast. This is your host Walker Near. The music for today's show is provided by Misha Zarin. So many thanks to Misha. I also strongly encourage people to check out their local food bank and see how they can help out. As food banks like Ozark's Food Harvest here in my town are helping families overcome food insecurity, which is a problem we need to solve. I also invite you to follow me on social media, such as Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, at either the Walk Show or the Walk Show Pod. Links for all that are in the show notes. This week, we are joined by Grace Salmon, author of the novel The Eaves, which released on June 15th, of 2020. Grace has been a writer for many years and started with nonfiction books in the realm of education before shifting gears to The Eaves. Grace is a beautiful soul who is very gracious with her time and had an insightful and candid conversation with me about her book, her approach to her work, and life in general. Let's get on to the conversation with Grace. Welcome to the Walk Show Podcast, Grace Salmon. Thank you so much for joining. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing wonderfully. How are you doing tonight, Walker? Thanks for having me.
0: I'm good. Yeah, for sure. I was really, really excited. Um, real quick, I will just give a shout out to the person that introduced us, Carolyn Owens. She's introduced a few different guests to me, and, and I've had the opportunity to be on her show and had the opportunity to have her on mine, and I just love Carolyn and always want to give Carolyn a shout out when I can. So, <laughs> would to-
1: She's fabulous. I'm recording with her in a couple of weeks, so I can't wait. She and I had a great pre-call, so that was great to have that opportunity to meet with her.
0: Yeah, yeah, she's 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 wonderful, a very generous person. Um, so, Grace, you have a um, a pretty long career actually as an author, but then just this year, um, kind of a different spin on on writing. You released your first novel, The Eves, which came out uh, June fifteenth of twenty twenty. How's how's that been, releasing a, a new novel?
1: It's such a different experience from having done my other work, which is all in the field of education. And uh, those were important and made, I think, a difference in the high schools in our country. I had the wonderful opportunity to work in 32 states. I worked on tribal lands. I worked with all sorts of different agencies. So I'm really proud of that work but I really feel that this is a different stage in my life. Now we're at this point where, you know, I'm not a mom anymore. I'm not a daughter anymore. I still have children, but they're grown. So I'm, my roles have changed. Uh, so this is very different. And then the idea of launching a book in a pandemic is a totally crazy thing.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I've, I've talked to a few authors that have done that this year and, um, it's it seems like it's kind of a I don't like I haven't really gotten a good sense of, of how how it's really affected, because on the one hand, people are home more. So maybe people have more opportunity to read, but they're also shopping less. So I don't know. <laughs> how does it seem to impact?
2: The well, leaves?
1: I, I think there are different things going on. First of all, we're in not only the pandemic, but we're just at this unprecedented period in our history. We've got the pandemic. We've got an election, regardless of what you feel about that. That's a huge news grabber. And then in addition to that, we've got all of the civil unrest that is going on. We've got things like the 100th anniversary of women's rights and voting. We've got Supreme Court. So it's very hard to get what I would call traditional traction around the entire um, releasing of a novel Plus then you've got the idea That you're certainly not walking into bookstores And doing any book signings So you're, there's a competing News cycle And then there's the pandemic
0: Yeah, well I was gonna, that was something I was going to ask Is ha, ha, have you been able to connect With your readers at all? I mean obviously not through book signings Which might be the more traditional way But um, have you been able to connect with your readers Through social media or, or any other platforms?
1: Definitely. And things like your podcast and Carolyn's and the other ones that I've done really, really help. Uh, One of the things that I think is different is I'm reinventing myself now. You know, I had a full career, as you mentioned, I've written multiple books and the Eves was something that just was super important for me to do, but I'm also 67 years old. So while I'm probably a different demographic than many of your listeners, there's also that huge learning gap for me of, you know, how to, Facebook, that's easy. Instagram, that was a tiny bit of a stretch. Twitter and LinkedIn, and all of the background things that go to that, that's a totally different experience to have to learn all of that. So the, the types of social media things that I've learned have really helped me to connect to the reader. And that's been super gratifying. So I've done a number of podcasts. There are a lot of book clubs that have invited me in, which is really wonderful. I love doing the Zoom book clubs. It's not as much fun as being there, but I really like that. Um and then, of course, you know, with the more traditional ways of connecting electronically. I love getting emails from people. I had this wonderful woman. She emailed me the other day, and she's 94 years old. And she said, I so want to take my place with the women of the Eves. And please promise me there will be a sequel in my lifetime.
0: Wow, that's, that's really like awesome. A
1: pretty, yeah, it, it really is awesome to think that... This woman, you know, and that's a lot of pressure for me. You know, she's 94. I, I certainly wish her another decade or more. But um, it's a lot of pressure for me with her being 94 to write another uh, a sequel. I'm working on another book, but a sequel, you know, hasn't exactly gelled in my head. But it's really lovely. I've got my youngest character in my book is 15. The oldest one is about 94. So it really speaks to a diverse group of readers at all different points in their lives. So if it wasn't for social media and uh, the news feeds uh, that have been nice enough to pick up the story, I don't know how you launch a book in a pandemic.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I will say, you know, so I'm, I'm 36 and um, while it might seem from that age that uh, social media should be my um, second language, it's not. Uh, and And I think, I think actually people who are now in their like mid twenties or earlier, probably are more native with it. But I think if it came out when you were a kid it's it's a lot easier to latch on because it's kind of just the way that that I think that generation has it's just woven perfectly into their social lives um, whereas me I mean I was well out of high school before any of that stuff came out and so I don't know I don't really get it either I mean <laughs> I get Facebook <laughs> oh, that makes me feel so much
1: better Yeah, (laughs) That makes me feel so much better. I was talking to my grandson the other day, who's five and a half, and he was so excited to show me all of the Zoom and mute features and all the ways to share your screen. And I was thinking, I did not expect you to be able to do that at five. Right. So I guess I have have a resource. I have a resource coming up.
0: Right. Yeah. No, it's better than better than me at those things as well. I mean, I can I can fumble my way through it because I'm, you know, comfortable with obviously with technology at some level, but yeah, social media and all that stuff. It's uh it it it's <laughs> it's not just unnatural for <laughs> for people of an earlier generation. It's also I'm technically an elder millennial and so we're all in that boat. <laughs> You've made um, my evening. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you've talked a little bit about the the, the characters in the Eves. You know, you've got uh, a, a wide range in, in age, and, and you've mentioned that they are women that are primarily the characters. What is the book, you know, at a high level? Obviously, we want people to read the book, and I don't mean for you to go through the whole thing or something, but what is kind of a synopsis of, of maybe the premise of the book?
1: There's the very psychologically complex Jessica Barnett, and she has given up on her ambition and her looks and her goals. And she hasn't given up on her vodka though. And she Mm. has just really kind of said, I'm done. She's 60 years old. Her kids are no longer a part of her life and she is devastated. And she has a very, very bossy friend who says to her, you are hiding, you have let your world stop. And I am going to introduce you to this group of diverse and determined women, and you are going to write their stories. And in the process of writing their stories, everything changes. Jessica's life Mm -hmm. changes, and each of the characters has a transformation. So... It's a story of never being done. It's a story of constantly redefining yourself. And it takes place mostly right outside of Washington, D.C., in a beautiful part of Maryland called Calvert Cliffs, overlooking the Chesapeake Bay. And there's a large part there. We spend time in Washington, D.C. We go to Africa. We go to Norway. And there are lots of plot twists and turns along the way, just like we have in life. There are definitely right. some unexpected things that happen.
0: Awesome. Um, well, so in writing it, you know, do, is it something where you're drawing on a lot of, of personal experiences or is it just kind of insights that you have about life that you're tra- kind of drawing from as, as the inspiration? How do, how do you, how do you create such a tale with so many diverse characters?
1: Well, I think a couple of things really were the impetus for writing the eaves. First of all, there's an old John Prine song called Hello and There, Hello, which I first learned about from Bette Midler. And it's the story of old people just grow older, and nobody pays attention to the real story of who they are. They're an old man or an old woman. And they are classified as that without anybody Understanding, respecting, and most importantly, caring about the breadth of their existence. And that song stayed with me forever. And I've always tried since the time I first heard it to never pass an older person without saying hello. And it's that that point in the song where it says, you know, and if you pass someone, don't just stop and stare as if you didn't care say hello in there. Hello. So I've always tried Mm -hmm. to do that. And then very unexpectedly, I got older and I did what I call aging out. You know, I aged out of the role of daughter. I aged out of the role of mother. And then there's that redefinition of who I was. So I just created the world that I wanted to create. I created a group of diverse women and men, although the primary characters are women. There are some wonderful men in the book as well. And there's black people and white people and Latinx people. There's a lesbian couple in the book. And I created this world that I would love to go sit with these women and age with them. The farm is a sustainable farm. So I had to learn all about, you know, renewable resources and gray water systems. So
2: Hmm.
1: there was the inspiration to do that based on the fact that I realized, you know, hopefully I've got 30 more years of defining Mm -hmm. and redefining myself and not wanting to be done with the sense of I'm over with. There's a wonderful scene in the book where this older 90-year-old former nun takes the main character aside and says, as long as you write about us, as if this is the end of our lives, you will never get the truth about any of us. Because once Mm -hmm. upon a time, we were girls and we still think we are hmm and that for me is a key message that we never think of ourselves as an old person you know you're thirty six you shared you're gonna think in your head you're thirty six for another thirty years right. in thirty years on that
0: <laughs> deal deal yeah no that's <laughs> that's that's a that's a fair point um Age is something that, that, I mean, I, you know, obviously at 36, just partway down the, the path, but I, I, I've i wondered for a few years now, if I will ever stop being amazed at what seems like the phenomenon of how quick the time goes by. And I guess probably not, because it'll always seem faster with each progressing year, right? Because <laughs> the, the scale of time sure. changes. Um, but yeah, that's, it's a... And it's 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 an interesting point that you make as well, because I think that it is easy to think of a person, um, and I don't know what the number is, or if there's a look, or or what it is, um, but there's certainly a, a way that, that people kind of assume, um, just to make assumptions about a character. And to some extent, I mean, you know, that might be true in a lot of different ways other than just age. A, a story that it, what you just shared reminded me of, though, and it's it's not directly related but but you will see we'll see what you think um <laughs> i've shared this story on the show before so for long time listeners forgive me um but I, I worked with a lady um at at my day job who was largely despised by most of the coworkers she was just very unreliable um not very professional just whatever a wide variety of things that made her not not a great coworker um but you know, nonetheless, still a person and still deserving of dignity and and all of that. So I would always say hello to her and and those sorts of things. But on her desk, she had a picture of what I assume was maybe a, a granddaughter of hers. There was a maybe three or four year old looking little girl, really cute little picture. And I looked at that picture one day, and it dawned on me that that little girl in the picture could do just about anything. And she would be forgiven almost instantly by the vast majority of people, if not all people. Um, But then here is her, her, you know, grandmother uh, that I work with and this person can't be forgiven, right? Like everyone wants to, to see her go, if you will. And it dawned on me that like, at one point in time, she was that little four-year-old girl too, you know, like at, at some point in time she would have been forgiven all of these, Behaviors or transgressions, or whatever you want to call it, and at some point we stop looking at people like that. We stop giving people the benefit of, of any sort of innocence or any sort of—I um, don't know what word to use—but that they're that maybe they're not coming from a place of of trying of malice. You know, like maybe they just don't know better. I think
1: that's. <laughs> I think that's a great insight that you realize that. I always try to tell myself nobody wakes up in the morning to ruin my day. You know, I, I can't imagine there's a person on the planet who says, "I'm gonna ruin Grace Salmons Day." You know th- right. I think it's very helpful to realize where is somebody else coming from. And that doesn't mean that we all haven't had that coworker or that person who just pushes our buttons. Uh, you know that that's just real stuff. But I think we also have to look at what our part in that is. you know uh, mm-hmm. what what's my part in it? do I, what am I doing to maybe trigger that? in another person, I I think that that's a really great concept that you have, that that person was once a little girl and we all deserve that human dignity. And I have no idea why this coworker is difficult to work with, but I think that in today's day and age, particularly, if we all just took a breath and tried to figure out where that person was coming from, uh, that would help a great deal. I also think the other part of this is for me, what legacy do we want to live? Switching a little bit from what we were just talking about, but what legacy do we want to leave? What mark on the earth do we want to leave? And people seem to be talking a lot about that right now. Families are spending more time together. Um, People who are coupled are spending more time together. And certainly that could be spent on Netflix binging, but there's much more time together to talk and to have those conversations. One of the things I say on the front of the book is that when our stories are told, everything changes. And our world has become so busy until COVID that we really haven't had the conversations sometimes that I think are important. When I wrote the book, as I said, you know, my parents were dead and I realized there were conversations I wish that I could still have with them. At the same point, when I started writing the book, I was thinking, gosh, there's so many things I'd like to tell my kids, but they're not really ready to listen. They weren't parents at the time. And, you know, they're busy in their careers. It's not going to be for years until they begin to have a different set of questions about, Some very simple things like, you know, what was my risotto recipe to more complex things like what was it like to be a single mom? So I think that that legacy matters. There's a chapter in the book called Reach, and I talk about how far can we reach back by telling the stories of our ancestors and what reach will we have into the future by what we're laying the groundwork for now, Um, So I love that concept of reach in back and forth. And I'm a firm believer that as long as we call somebody's name, they are still somehow alive. So if I talk about my high school drama teacher, um, Inez Spires, she's been dead for 30 years, but she's somehow alive tonight because I remember what it was like to work with her. So reach Uh and legacy is really important. And we have the time now to have those conversations.
0: Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's, that's really powerful. Um, Is that something that, that you kind of um, started thinking about as a result of writing the book or before writing the book, or is that something you've held a view or a thought that you've held for a long time?
1: I think it became more focused as I was writing. I knew that I wanted Jessica, the main character, to figure out what legacy she was living and leaving. And I knew that I wanted these old women, for the most part women, to have a voice for their story. But one of the main characters is a life coach. And ironically, she's Mm. dying of cancer. And she's really, really struggling with this concept that she is a life coach and is dying. And when Mm. I was writing the chapter about Sydney, who's the, the name of that character, I just really began to focus on... What does it mean? You know, we've heard the expression one day at a time. We only have today. Well, Sydney talks about the dash. There's the year she's born and the year she's going to die. And then there's going to be a dash, you know, from whatever year you're born, dash to whatever year you die. And she talks about mm. the importance of making sure the dash matters.
2: Mm. And I
1: uh, that just... I don't know where that came from but Sydney was very smart in the book.
0: <laughs> yeah, no that's that yeah that's a I've I I feel like I've encountered that maybe somewhere else but I don't know but that's a maybe just a similar sentiment but that's a really great way to put that. Um and yeah, I mean obviously it that's the the entirety of of life to some extent. I Yeah, I don't know. It's it it's um it can be challenging to to think think that way it's a it's a you know like you said it's a cliche you know live every day like it's your last or you only have today or whatever but but to some extent that's not true because i mean like i think it's probably important for me to to secure running water for tomorrow too you know um absolutely so i don't i don't literally want to live like (laughs) like there's some value in planning for the future um But at the same time, I certainly understand the sentiment of like, the truth is, is that you don't live in the future or the past, you only live in the present. And so by constantly projecting into the future or for constantly looking to the past, you're not, you're kind of betraying the moment that you do still have now. Um, I guess it's a balance that has to be kind of struck between, between the two, yeah?
1: Well, I was gonna say that exact word. I think the key to a happy life is balance. And
2: mm-hmm. anybody
1: who can figure out the balance thing already has the life journey one, I think. Uh, it's easy to get caught up. You know, today was an incredibly busy day. I've had a couple of interviews for which I'm super grateful for. But there's been tons of technology glitches that I didn't know about, um, things that I had to learn quickly on the fly. So there's that balance of how important is it and enjoying the moment and then also realizing tomorrow's going to be another day and you know i've got great things planned for tomorrow so and whether that's writing or doing laundry doesn't really matter but i need to do those things
0: as we've, we've spoken to, you know, you'd written a few nonfiction books uh, prior to to the Eves. um, And those were based really on on education. Did you find it more enjoyable to write the novel than the nonfiction books? Or was it similar or or more challenging than you thought it would be? How did that kind of play out?
1: That's a great question. Um, They're such different experiences. When you write An education book. I thought it would have been much harder. Uh, I wrote my first education book. It was on high school improvement. I had a lot of experience giving talks and working in 32 states, so I had tons of material. I wrote to 14 different publishers, and uh, 11 publishers actually wanted the book, which was a a phenomenal statistic. And Uh I picked the one, Corwin Press, which is a great press. And I picked them for a number of reasons. They were easy to work with, and I knew that from other colleagues. They had a speaker circuit. They uh, had a very nice uh, royalty share. So I felt very confident of the 11 that I wanted to try out, that Corwin was the best bet for me. And it worked out wonderfully. Part of that process then is you write, you research, and you get vetted or you get juried. They'll send out your book to superintendents, to high school principals, to people in the departments of education, and get lots of feedback. And then you make whatever adjustments you need to make. That somehow felt easier, Maybe because Mm. I'm in education and it felt more like, oh, this is like writing a term paper and getting feedback or writing a thesis. It it seemed easier. In those books, just like in my novel, I started with the end in mind. And that's a big expression in education. Start with the end in mind. So I knew Mm -hmm. what I want, where I wanted to go with the books. I knew where I wanted to start. The middle was a blur. That was the hard part of writing those. The similarity Mm -hmm. between those and the novel is I work exactly the same way. I knew where I wanted the book to end up. I knew where I wanted the book to start. The middle was totally confusing to me. I didn't know how the two ends would meet, and in the novel I'm currently working on, I have exactly the same problem. I know where I start, I know where I end, and I walk around the house going, "Well, how is this going to happen? How do I make this happen?" Um, so that part of the writing process is harder because you're making stuff up. You know, you're you're doing a lot of research. My, the book starts during the last pandemic and two sisters, the new book starts during the last pandemic. And it starts with two sisters coming over to the United States. And I know what happens to them initially. And I know what happens to their descendants, but mm. it's it's a mystery to me. It's a mystery and it's a fun mystery right now about right. how this will transpire. What's very different in the writing of a novel, though, and I just finished a piece for another webcaster on the process of writing a nonfiction versus a fiction, it's much, much harder to get published you have a 1% chance of getting an agent, 1% chance of getting an agent. This is if you traditionally publish. So there's such a spectrum now of how to get published. And I'm getting smarter and smarter about this. Um, I wish I had been smarter about this before, but I'll be smarter about it for the next novel. So there's traditional publishing where you go out and get an agent. You have a 1% chance of doing that. Then once you get okay. an agent, yeah, so that's a real that's a real motivator right there. <laughs> then you get a ten percent <laughs> right. chance, right? A real motivator. So you have about a ten percent chance of then being picked up by one of the big publishing houses, mm. and so also not a big motivator. And then you have right. the area of publishing houses which take uned- unagent unagent and unagented work if you don't have an agent and they'll review it and they'll shop it and they'll figure out if it's sellable and then you'll write a contract with them. And again, I I would recommend to any of your listeners, you do the same thing I did with Corwin. You figure out who's going to give you the best deal. You know, do they have a PR person who's going to help you launch the book? And then there's the world of indie publishing, independent Just like independent films, you have indie publishing. And that's the route I went, because for me, what was most important was getting my story told and having the conversations that people are having about the book. You know, I love it when they call me up and say, I just had this amazing conversation with my mom about X, Y, or Z. And in the back of the book, I have great book club questions, but I also have questions that have nothing to do with the book that just say, ask the person across the table from you this question to build a conversation. And those are on my website as well. So the really part of it was how do we build a conversation? So I wanted to make sure that book clubs would have great material to be able to talk for hours and hours, but also since the richness of the conversation that happens in the book is a key factor. I wanted people to have rich conversations about lots of other things as well. So, um, You know, just the kinds of conversations that I was just going to quickly flip through the book even and see if I could come up with some of them. But I think, let me, give me one second here. Sure. I'm not finding them. but they're on my website and they're just things like, you know, who was your favorite teacher? What was your scariest moment? Uh, where did you go to grade school? What did you want to be when you grow up? Why didn't you become that? What did you become? There's just a whole list of questions. So getting back though, to your point, before we go back to all the other things that are in the book that prompt good conversations are that concept of how do you want your voice to get out. And uh, I think it really helps to know the publishing world, whichever way you're going to go into it and make really good decisions about that. Um, Because it's a very changing market right now.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I've had, I've had, I've talked to a couple of people. Um, One guy is actually the head of sales for (laughs) a company called self publishing school uh, I've had him as a guest uh-huh. a couple of times just to talk about anything. Uh, actually, one of the, one of the episodes was his own self published book, and then I had another author on a few weeks ago that had self published a book. Um, but yeah, it's a it seems like a pretty a pretty involved process. Kind of no matter which way you go, uh, it sounds like if you go the in air quotes traditional way, you kind of have to thread the eye of the needle in order to <laughs> to get anything through. So.
1: I think it does have, you know, the, I think it has that challenge of going traditional publishing. And I would be lying if I didn't say, oh, you know, I, I want, you know, Random House to pick up the book. Or, you know, there's certainly, you can Google, and this is a great little Google thing. I never remember all the books, but you can Google books that were self published that became bestsellers and movies. And the one that comes mm. to mind uh, up. Up front is that movie with Matt Damon a couple of years ago, The Martian, and he's off and he lands on Mars and he gets stuck there and he grows potatoes. He got the book contract and the movie contract for that the same day, and he just self-published it on Amazon KDP. So. I, I don't want anybody to think that there's still not multiple ways to get your voice out. And I would be lying if I wouldn't say that I would still love my book to be picked up by a traditional house. I would definitely be lying if I didn't tell you I know every character and every actor who's going to star in it when it hits the Netflix series and the sequel.
2: <laughs> right.
1: Uh, you know, that's that is that is my fantasy. And I truly believe that will happen based on the feedback um, I'm getting. That's a whole nother level of work. Uh, Right. But I also, I also had to really wrestle with the term self publishing because to me that also felt like I failed. So it really did. It felt like I failed not getting it really published. And I have to tell Mm. you that once I switched to the idea of indie publishing, independent publishing, nobody thinks of Robert Redford's Indie Film Festival as a bad thing. Nobody thinks, oh, look at all those films that Robert Redford is showing. They're just indie films. So once I switched to the concept of being an indie publisher, and, you know, it's just words... But for me, it really made a difference because I can tell you that there is not one person, whether it's been a television interview, a radio interview, sales at Amazon, nobody has stopped to say, uh, you know, did Random House or Penguin or Harlequin or whoever publish that.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, I think that I mean, yeah, I think that there's um, validity to what you're talking about there, and I think that I think it's good that there's enough that there the technology is is in place now that people have such a variety of, of avenues. Um, but you're absolutely right about it. independent. You know, I I will admit I actually hadn't considered independent book publishing before, but it makes sense because you know you bring up film, but independent independently published music is a very popular scene um, and has been for a long time now and I I actually am an avid video game player and there's an entire marketplace of video games that are published independently um, without one of the major publishers so um, it it only makes sense that that same thing would exist in books as it does in all the other forms of, of media I guess.
1: And I think it's going to be really helpful, too, if you do things like find, I found a wonderful company called Writing Nights, like writing, um, W-R-I-T-I-N-G, Nights, N-I-G-H-T. And uh, Mm -hmm. the people there, particularly Chad Robertson there, is so skilled at helping indie authors find their voice and teaching them the basics of Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all of the things that indie authors need to know. So finding somebody who can create great covers for you. The first cover of my book, I loved. But when we set it out to a beta group, people were horrified by it. And now I have a cover wow. that everybody loves. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Except you, perhaps I guess, right?
1: (laughs) No, I do. I no, I absolutely. I love my cover. I actually wrote to the cover designer the other day and said, "Oh, please enter it in a cover contest. It's so pretty."
0: Oh, awesome! Well, and I was just trying to be funny. Um, (laughs) I didn't think you really didn't like. of a, a non sequitur, actually, and i had meant to ask you this earlier when you mentioned it, and and it slipped my mind, and then now it's come back. So I'm going I'm to ask it now. But you know, I read about or or watch interviews with with actors um, from from TV and movies, and they'll talk about how they get a new role, and and one of the thing that's that's most exciting, especially if it's a more involved role in the film, is that they they kind of end up putting themselves, you know, in that that profession that they're going to be portraying in the film. Um, so really doing a lot of research and really learning a lot about it so that they can portray it more accurately in the movie, which makes good sense. But that's kind of one of the, the fun things about being a, an actor. Um, but you actually mentioned kind of a similar thing with, with, with writing where, you know, you were doing all this research um, to write about these different concepts. Like I, I think you mentioned, you know, farming and, and, and the things of that nature how much of that went into to, to the book, kind of this research and kind of educating yourself on things that that are at least related to the content of the book, if not directly the content of the book, if, if that makes sense?
1: Oh, that's a great question. And it's kind of a two part question. So if I don't get to the second part, remind me to circle around to that. Sounds good. It was it was really important to me because my characters are so diverse. And, Mm. you know, getting a older black man's voice, and I don't mean the sound of it or the timber of it. I mean, the authenticity of it real is as a Caucasian writer, a a big responsibility, whether Mm -hmm. I'm. Writing for Tobias, my fabulous, fabulous character who I would love to spend eternity with. He's an African-American doctor who owns all of this acreage where the women come and live, or his daughter who happens to be a lesbian, or the uh, wonderfully um, bossy, vibrant Argentinian woman. It was mm. really important for me to to be humble, first of all, as a as a writer, and hope and work that I get those voices as authentically and respectfully as possible. Um, that that's a huge challenge. So I had to listen to the words that poured out at the end of my fingers, that, that that's not a good, uh, it's a mixed <laughs> it. it's a mixed thing, but I had to listen to those words very, very carefully. And I had the huge gift that, um, when I was done a chapter at night, I printed off and I would have my husband read it to me aloud so I could hear it mm. and hear if it, if I thought it was right. Um, I hope I honor those voices. I also realize that as a Caucasian writer, um, I'm probably fairly, I hope, judged on getting it right. There's a wonderful book right now by Jeannie Cummings called American Dirt. And it's mm, the story okay. of people, Mexican people mostly, escaping Mexico and coming to the United States. And it is harrowing. And I thought it was beautifully written. And it has a lot of Spanish in it, of which I could dissect pieces, but not lots. But my Spanish is good enough to enjoy the flavor of her interjecting Spanish. She is Puerto Rican. And she got vast criticism for having the audacity to write a largely Mexican voice um, mm. as an author, I wrestle with that. I, I, I would hate to think I would be so one dimensional as an author that I would only write about white people. Um, and okay. certainly my life is richer by having, um, uh, a mix and a diversity of friends who may indeed be prototypes for some of the people in the book, uh, without being, stealing their characters. So having them in my head and being authentic to them is, was very, very important to me. And so that's, a, I, I love that you asked that question. Um, And I'm going to actually think more about that as the evening goes on. The other part of it, though, or that second part is kind of my role as author. You know, it's very I think of myself as a super authentic person. What you hear as you listen to me tonight and as your reader, as your listeners will listen uh, when you post your podcast there's nothing fake about what I'm doing, but there's definitely an energy or a persona or a dynamic that fits into that who is Grace salmon author and uh-huh. And that's been a surprise as well. You know, the mm-hmm. on cameraness, the on ness or the on airness has been. I hope first and foremost authentic, but it also, it makes me, and, and you must feel the same way at times, it makes you much more aware of what you say or how you say it, which as an author is actually a really good thing.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, that That's absolutely true. I think there's also um I don't I, so I I hope I don't go too far <laughs> off the rails here um and f- feel free to interrupt me oh, if I Oh go am, for it.
1: Go for it. I
0: I I think it's very commendable um for you to 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 take the the risk to write about characters that are not your, that are not like you. Um and I don't say that to flatter you but I say it for the same really the same kind of thing that you said that like you know you positioned it as like well that would be um Uh, disappointing maybe I don't now. I don't remember the exact word to use but if if you only wrote about people who were exactly or as close to like you as you possibly could um I think that that art you know which certainly obviously writing is is art um it 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 demands taking those risks some extent you know I I absolutely to be clear I'm not a stand-up comedian uh, I I've <laughs> I've dabbled in it um, and I say that just because I don't want to trivialize the people who do stand-up comedy because it's really that's really hard work and I have not done all the work that they have done but um, you know I think that the, the for me where I think of that the most is like in stand-up comedy where it's so we're in such a a, a very um, I don't know what word to use uh, sensitive sounds dismissive and I don't mean it that way but for the sake of, of moving on, (laughs) that's the word I'll choose. We're in such a sensitive time now where anything can be anything that's said that, that is to someone, you know, offensive or whatever, it's, it's this like catastrophe all of a sudden that it's, that it's even been said or written. And I just, I disagree with that. And, and again, I I also don't mean to go all political or something, but I'm someone who's very much a a liberal, you know, kind of person um, who, is welcoming of all people and, and completely anti bigotry. And, you know, (laughs) um, in all ways am, 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 am an ally of, of the social justice movements that are going on in America. That being said, I do think that we run the risk sometimes of, of silencing people because it's, it's almost frightening to step out of, out of, you know, the comfort zone of yourself. Um, so I think it's great that, that you're willing to take the risk to do that. And, um, and I think that, you know, and certainly I've not heard this or anything, not that there is anything that should should ever be challenged in anything that you've ever written, but even if there was, uh, again, hypothetically, then I think that's, an, you know, earlier we're talking about the value of conversations. Well, that's what that opens the opportunity for, is a chance for a conversation, not a chance for an ostracization, which is <laughs> where we seem to be going these days.
1: And I think you're absolutely correct. I think that this is why when our stories are told, everything changes, why conversations are so important. When I had a beta group of readers, I sent it to a diverse group of people. I sent it to my black friends and my white friends and my Latino friends or my Latinx friends. And I I asked them, did I get it right? So part of the onus of responsible writing is to do what i just described but i also Mm -hmm. think that i i will never get it a hundred percent right one of the things that comes up in the book which is funny because i wrote that section of the book almost two years ago is i talk about juneteenth in the book and i would say Mm. that prior to this year most caucasians would know zero about Juneteenth, and I have one of the African American women talking about how she wants to have this big celebration, and one of the white women is like, "What the heck's that? I don't never heard of that. That sounds stupid." And they learn together. You know, it's mm. it's not a matter of judgment. Um, I think that there are certainly things that we can be judging about um, people's behavior now, for sure. I. I but i also think and and, you know for sure and i am in your camp and i think anybody who would read my book would know that that you know i'm liberal i'm inclusive but it doesn't mean i always get it right i have a very Mm -hmm. um wonderful son who uh i have phenomenal and exhausting conversations with and uh somehow a year ago we started talking about Halloween costumes and I was telling Mm. him that I wanted, you you know, and we were supposed to pick a character out of a book. Uh, And I think there may have even been something about a favorite children's book. So I said, Mm. I wanted to be tiger, tiger Lily out of Peter Pan. Mm. This this prompted a half hour discussion on why I could never be Tiger Lily. And mm. I was like, why? And he said, well, first of all, you're not Native American. You can't co-opt their culture. And I'm sure he said all of that far more brilliantly than I am relaying it to you. But I stayed in the Peter Pan um book, if you will. I certainly didn't want to be Wendy. Wendy was this girl who only saw herself as a mother. She wanted to save the lost boys. She was a Mm. product of her Victorian period. So Wendy was out. I didn't want to be Tinkerbell, as cute as she is. She was really, really bossy and tried to kill off Wendy. She was very... (laughs) I mean, really, if you read Peter Pan all over again, Tinkerbell is this bossy little girl who tries to kill off when uh, Peter Pan, Wendy, I'm sorry, because she's jealous. She wants Peter for himself, herself. So I certainly Mm. didn't want to be Tinkerbell, which leaves you with the mermaids, which I'd love to be a mermaid. Okay. But the really strong character in Peter Pan is the female young Indian. And I can never be her, according to my son. So that prompted, I use that as an example of a conversation that can be built about, you know, why it would be inappropriate to co-opt someone's culture. And then we got into this whole thing of like, you know, should I be Ruth Bader Ginsburg? I'm not Jewish. Is that wrong? I don't know where we begin to draw the subtleties. Ruth Bader Ginsburg and I are both white, but I'm not Jewish. I'm also tall and fat, and she wasn't. But, you know, I don't know where we begin to draw those subtleties. So that's one part of it. I think the other part is living always in respect. And then the third part is what do we learn? I, I learned, you know, I'm sure we could dissect Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer today and the characters in there. And we would have a different lens today than mm-hmm. we would yeah. when that was written. We would have a very different lens. But at least in my growing up, I never felt any of those characters were inferior. I And I probably wasn't smart enough to even know they were stereotypical. Mm-hmm. So hopefully good books open conversations about these things and hopefully writers spend the time to respect the right voices.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you're, you know, you hit on a really, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, the million dollar question or maybe a million dollars isn't enough anymore in 2020, the hundred million dollar question. Um, but you know, is where are the lines where are these subtle nuances that where it it crosses a line, into inappropriate and I you know I, I I think as you've also you know outlined in our conversation it, it's it's not it's not something that <laughs> there's not a there's not another book already written where we can go and read and say oh okay I can't do that costume but I could do this one and that then this is why like there isn't that and so as a result again it goes back to what we're talking about it goes back to to conversations it goes back to having those dialogues and talking about hey if I was going to do this does that make sense and get input from other people? And, uh, and in the end, as with all of life, I guess there's going to be some risk in, in anything that you do because it's impossible to account for everything. But as you said, there are certainly actions and positions and, and statements that are just blatantly deplorable. So I don't mean to imply that, <laughs> that everything's on the table because it's not. Um, but I think that there's also a person can come from a place to genuine good. And, and that's, that's not hard to understand either if, you know, to, to do that.
1: I agree. And I think that if nothing else as Caucasian people, as a Caucasian woman, I have learned this year in a deeper way than ever before. And I would love to say that, you know, I, I got this a long time ago. Um, But I've learned in a much deeper way about the differences that people experience um, in how they're treated uh, in in, in big ways, like with George Floyd. And I don't want to say in small ways, like the name of the Washington Redskins, because that's a really big thing, too. It's a different thing. Um, Mm -hmm. I for years would have probably said, I for years probably would have just said, you know, what's the big deal? Um, but I think that we first have to start saying, if it is offensive to someone, what is? And, and, and this doesn't just mean for white people, for goodness sakes. But if something is offensive, it is our responsibility as humans to try to figure that out and to figure yes. out: you know, Am I right in this? Am I complicit in this? Um, am I am I making a, a voice? Uh, to address
0: this. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that, uh, yeah, I think everything that you're saying makes, makes good sense. And it's a, it's, it's a, it's certainly challenging. And I don't mean to imply that like, oh, I wish we weren't having this conversation, not just you and I, but as a nation, you know, right now, um, I think it's all, it's all necessary and it's all, it's all, it's all healthy in the end. Um, and I think that it just takes people to, to Again, and I'm not trying to flatter you, but like yourself, to be courageous enough to, to put your voice out there and to put your own you know, your own content or your own message out there. Um, and, then, and then be willing to talk about it and be willing to, to discuss it and be willing to see where else it can go and, and, and all of that. So I think that all, that all makes good sense.
1: Thank you for that. And also say that probably most authors would tell you writing is the most naked thing they do. Because even if mm. it's not about them, uh, there's so much of your soul that's put into a book that writing mm. feels like a very, very naked, naked thing.
0: And that, that makes sense. There is a lot of vulnerability to it. I mean, I, again, certainly I am not a writer at all. And the little bit that I did stand-up comedy, I mean, I again, I have, I'm making some assumptions here, but I think that there's a... Um, I think there's a comparison there where you go on stage and you're standing in front of people and you're telling them something that you made up and it, you know, it's all from your head and then they judge it in real time (laughs) by either laughing or not laughing. Um, Absolutely. It's it's a very, naked is a very good word for that feeling. So, Was just going to switch gears to ask about, you know, what your writing process looks like. I mean, you talked about how you kind of begin with the end in mind. So you know where you want to start, you kind of know where you want it to, to eventually conclude, but then the middle is this kind of fuzzy process. Is it something where, you know, are you doing like a, like free writing type exercises or, or just again, kind of generally, what does your writing process look like on a, you know, day over day?
1: Ideally I'll, have a sense of where I'm going. And sometimes that helps with, you know, if the further you write into it, right. So if I know where it starts and I know where it ends, sometimes I'll actually write towards the middle, you know, I'll write a few chapters Mm. in the beginning and I'll think, Oh, then that's going to need to happen. So Mm. that, that helps. Um, I'm also lucky. And I, I, don't know if I said this earlier, I also have such a vivid brain that I dream a lot about this. So I love when I wake up and I have the characters talking in my head, you know, I'll I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll be, yeah, I'll be laughing because Deirdre just said something to Margaret Mary and I'll think that's hysterical. Now, obviously it's my brain that's creating that, but I love that my brain works while I'm asleep. I also think it's really yeah. important to have a beta, a beta group. As I said, I was really, really lucky when um, I was finishing up the eaves. I was giving the maybe the last six chapters to a friend of mine to read as I was writing, which served two great purposes. One, it was great motivation because she was like, oh, my God, I want the yeah. next chapter. I want the next chapter. So it was motivation and stimulation and a little bit of an ego trip. But there's a character in the Eaves. at one point prior to when the story starts, many years before the story starts, Jessica gives, Jessica gives up a baby boy for adoption. And she mm. tells that very early on. And my girlfriend knows now that I'm in the last six or eight chapters of the book. And she says, like, well, when are we going to meet her son? And I'm like, we're not going to meet his son her son. Why would we do that? Mm. She says, no, I, I have been waiting since chapter two. You know, there's, <laughs> this is really important. And I was yeah. like, oh no. So then I had to go back and I started researching names for boys that would have been born around the time this kid would have been given up for adoption. Wow. And she gives him up in Norway. And then I thought, oh, I better check what are the adoption proceedings in Norway? So I had to go find out that you can't just pop out as an exchange student in Norway and say, hi, here's my newborn, because as an exchange student, you need a waiver from both the father and the mother. Well, the father wasn't present. So I had to do all of that research. So I had to do all sorts of rewriting. And um, the character's name is Jesper. It's spelled J E S P E R. And he's one of my favorites. And I'm so sorry I didn't meet him till like chapter right before it ends. So part of it is getting that stimulation about it. Um, Authors, I think, are notorious about eavesdropping on conversations. And stealing snippets of conversations or somebody will say something interesting back in the day when we still had dinner parties and I'll go, Oh, that could fit into my book. So I do keep like a little file of ticklers. One of the things that um, is going to happen in the egg, the new book is I wasn't really aware of the 100th anniversary of the women's right to vote, when I started the planning for the the new book. Well, that's come up a lot as we move into a season of voting. So I thought, oh, now the, the two young women who come in 1918 have to be aware of what that voting process is like you know they so i'm still in the process of how do you become a citizen you come in 1918 the vote comes in 1920 do these people get to vote are they suffragettes do they meet suffragettes so part of the story just unfolds as i do the research
0: Mm. yeah that makes a lot of sense and i i I I, thank you very much for sharing that just because I think it's so interesting to talk to the different creative people about kind of how they, they come up with this because for non-creative people like myself, um, (laughs) you know, I understand, which I'm not like a mathematician or something, but I understand things more linearly. Right. And so it, it, it's hard sometimes to conceptualize, like, well, how do you know what the beginning is and the end is, but you don't know what the middle is, you know? And, and, but that's, that's a very common among the writers I've talked to. And one of my closest friends since I was six years old is a, a writer and, and his process is the same kind of thing. He, he writes poetry and he'll even be, you know, he'll even start with an idea for a poem and then start trying to fit it into the form. And then, actually kind of stumble into something that takes it in a totally different direction than what he had intended. Right. And so it's, it's just this process of, of discovery. And I think that that's the the sentiment that's lost among people maybe who aren't as experienced with this kind of work is that um, the creativity, you know, unlike if you were going to, let's say, build a house, like <laughs> you're probably not going to, on the fly make wild decisions that are, that change how the house is constructed because there's kind of a formula, a template for that. Um, but when it comes to to things like writing or writing music, I have another friend that does that. There's a lot of discovery that comes in the act of actually doing the writing. Um, and I just think that's a, a fascinating a fascinating thing that, that writers have.
1: I think you're 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 on to something there. I'm beginning to draw some subtleties and i'm not sure where i am exactly with this yet but i think there's a difference between a writer an author and a storyteller Mm. and Mm. i've just begun i've just begun playing with this like i believe everyone can write if you are taught well and understand the ins and outs you can be a writer you could be a technical writer Sometimes, Mm. though, I still wrestle between am I an author or a storyteller? And when I, when in my mind, where I'm beginning to pick this apart is the parts of the book, my first book, the first novel, The Eaves, where I'm pretty verbatim. There's a scene where one of the characters' mom dies. And that scene is pretty much verbatim how I experienced my mom's death. So Mm -hmm. it's poignantly written. People cry. You know, they'll call me up and go, oh, my God, when Joan died, it was so sad. So I know it's well written. But I'm not really crafting a story there, if you understand my subtlety there. So there's the story is the construction of... The piece, whether you're making that story through music or you're making that story through a poem, I'm beginning to think of these subtleties of writer, author, storyteller. And as I said, I don't have it all laid out
0: in my head. I guess maybe it depends on how much you embellish the story, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe that helps you cross over into the maybe. author category. You... Maybe. <laughs> um, maybe. Well, well, that's awesome. Well, well, one, one final question about your process. Um, it, how? And this is something else that I found is, is pretty common among writers, but I'm curious with you, how, you know, obviously you spend a lot of time writing. How much time do you spend reading?
1: That really varies. Um, I run in spurts. I always like to think that I have a fiction book and a nonfiction book going. uh, That hasn't happened in a long time. Uh, Sometimes I can read three books a month, and sometimes it'll be a month or or three months with one book. So I would like to read more. It was one of my New Year's resolutions to read more, write more. And I have done that, but not as much as I would like.
0: Sure. Who and you know I'm not going to ask for a favorite or something because that's too um, too on the nose. But just who who would be an author that you would say is is an inspiration for you?
1: Oh, there are so many. I I love the way Eric Larson writes. He wrote Devil in the White City, which is just a fabulous read on the Chicago World's Fair and the sinking of the Titanic. And it's got two subplots. It's got this um, whole murder mystery at the bottom of it, but all the World's Fair stuff at the top. So that would be one of my favorite books. Um, I love uh, The Little Paris Bookshop. Um Oh, gosh. Uh, What my most recent interesting read was um, The Book Woman of Troublesome Creek by uh, Kim Richardson. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know it's about um, women in Appalachia during the late 30s who actually brought books in baskets on mules into the Appalachian countryside. But there's also these characters that are truly blue there are people who are blue based on pigmentation and genetic um, mutation. So it, it, mm. anytime where I get to learn about something like people who are truly blue in color, and they're very prejudiced, like the white people in the town hate them, the black people in the town hate them, and it's because they are physically blue. So to, mm. to learn, any, anytime I get a great sense of place, and great characters, and get to learn something. I'm all in.
0: Yeah, yep. Now that's that's the makings of a of a great read. Um, well, Grace, I I really really appreciate you stopping by the the show and, and joining me for this conversation night. Uh, it's been a very honest and, and candid conversation, and, and very thoughtful um, on your part at least. I don't know that I was that thoughtful, but <laughs> um, you were
1: wonderful, there, Walker. There,
0: Is there anything else that you would like to to discuss um, while we're here?
1: Oh, I think you were wonderful. Thank you. I just want to encourage your listeners to have good conversations. Take time to listen to each other. Um, If you go to my website, gracesalmon.net, there's a couple of places you can get started. There's also um, a whole playlist of things. One of the things that surprised me in my writing was I'm not somebody who listens to a lot of music, but there's a section on my website that talks about music that inspired the book. And I love that that's there for people who like the music, but also because it's such not a part of me. I love that it became a part of me.
0: Yeah, that's great. I I love music. I mean, music is baked into to every episode of the Walk Show, um, just because I I like it, and <laughs> for, for no other reason um, than I just like music and, and want to put to have more of it out there. Um, it, but you said that the the really the original inspiration came from a song, so really music's been kind of tied to to the eaves the whole time, right?
1: It has been. I just didn't realize how. It central a part it would take e, uh, Jessica has a whole list of songs that she listens to regularly and uh, they play a really important part in the ending of the book which has a surprising twist and turn
0: awesome well Grace thank you so much again for joining gracesalmon.net is the website and I'll make sure and have links to that and then also a link where people can go buy the book from Amazon on the show notes um, again really appreciate your time it's been a pleasure
1: Mine too. Thanks, Walker. Be good. Take care.
2: on the memories drift i Generations walked those halls. Now the roof crumbles under the sky. The staircase came crashing down. Step by step they fell to the ground.
0: Alrighty, folks, well, that's going to do it for the show today. Thank you so much again to Gray Salmon for stopping by. Again, the book is The Eaves, you can find that on Amazon. We'll have a link in the show notes for you to pick that up. Also, I want to thank Misha for the music for today's episode, always appreciate that. And of course, thank you, listener, for listening to the show today. I'd also like to invite you to listen to my other podcast, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is a gaming podcast I co host with Brett Lindley. Instead of just news and reviews, we try and talk about why gaming matters. You can find Pick Up Your Sticks anywhere podcasts are found. Again, thanks for the listen. Have a great week. Stay up.